0: Uh, my name is Mike Diedrich. This is uh, Veterans for Peace Chapter 92 radio show. And with me today are Ron Carver and Randy Rowland. And both of them are involved uh, internationally in, in Ron's case and Randy's too in the production of the Vietnam the Vietnam exhibit on, on uh, the war and the uh, traveling exhibit, actually, actually in the case of, of, of that. Uh, it's been around for some time. I'll let uh, Ron uh, give a short introduction to the uh, and the history of the exhibit and uh, where we are in Seattle. And then Randy can jump in anytime he wants to. So go ahead, Ron, give an ex- uh, introduction to it. Thank you. Sure.
1: My name is Ron Carver. I'm a longtime uh, social justice anti war activist. Uh, started out just after high school graduation, working with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, Julian Bond and John Lewis at their Atlanta headquarters, and then spent a year in Mississippi on SNCC projects there, SNCC Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Um, during the war, uh, I was active starting with the first national. A protest in April 1965. I drove up with a carload of people from uh, Starkville, Mississippi to uh, attend that protest. And then after uh, graduation from college, I began working with anti war GIs at a coffee house outside of Fort Dix and helped to raise money to open coffee houses outside of military bases. Uh, around the country and in Asia, and in Germany, and helping GIs back from Nam uh, tell their stories, write them up, publish them in what were called underground newspapers, and which they would then distribute on bases. My first uh, visit to Vietnam uh, was in was six years ago exactly, in October 2016. Uh, I went there to photographically document the work started by American Vietnam veterans to clear the landmines and bombs that still litter the countryside in Vietnam. Hundreds and thousands, uh, over ten percent of the bombs we dropped, uh, were still alive uh and, and remain live today, uh, uh, many years after the war ended, and 1975. Uh, My first day there, I stopped by the War Remnants Museum in uh, Saigon. Uh, The the director asked me, what was I doing during the war? I told her what I just told you about working with the anti-war veterans. And she asked uh, me if I would be willing to curate an exhibit uh, about the GIs and veterans, uh, US GIs and veterans opposed the war. I I agreed to, I just finished a, a job with uh, the Communication Workers of America and I had some free time. I thought it'd take me six months, but here I am six years later and I'm uh, still working on it because though the exhibit opened in Saigon in, in uh, March of 2018 and it's still there, it's still on exhibit through the end of this month. Uh, or through the end of November uh, at the War Remnants Museum. In May of 2018, uh, my wife and I made a duplicate of the exhibit. It uh, put up. It, it was installed at uh, University of Notre Dame, and that kicked off a project of uh, taking this exhibit around to universities throughout the United States with. Been at uh, over a dozen so far with a twofold purpose. Uh, one is to change the way scholars in this country write and teach about the war to try and encourage them to talk about the key roles that played by tens of thousands of anti-war soldiers, sailors, Marines, Air Force personnel that helped to bring the war to an end. And the second is to inspire young people today uh, to understand that if if uh, soldiers in the midst of that war, uh, in uniform, uh, working under their very repressive military so-called justice system, were able to build a movement strong enough to help bring the war to an end, then we want young people to be inspired, whatever their passion is, uh, climate change, Uh, stopping the current wars, uh, gender equity, uh, marriage equity, uh, voting rights, uh, whatever their passion is, that they should feel inspired by the success of the GI anti-war movement during the Vietnam War.
0: Well, great. And uh, so now here we are at the University of Washington, Seattle, and uh, the exhibit is due to be uh, shown, let's see, well, I'll let you, September 28th to October 28th. I'll let Randy do a little uh, uh, update on what's what's happening at the university and uh, the exhibit. Thank you, Randy.
2: Hi, my name is Randy Rowland. Um, I was one of those GI resistors back in the day. that was part of the GI movement. I uh, uh, ultimately was uh, convicted of mutiny um, while I was in the Army. I was an Army medic. Um, And, um, you know, the the G.I. movement and this exhibit talking about the G.I. movement really is an answer to the question of how do you stop those who will stop at nothing? Because, you know, um, throughout history, everybody has kind of always, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people who have tried to answer that question. Uh, You know, um, Bertolt Brecht did his famous poem about, uh, uh, well, as long as a tank needs a driver and a bomber needs a pilot, then sooner or later the people will win. You know and and uh, it was exactly the answer that uh, American soldiers had to come up with uh, when they were faced with the situation of being on the wrong side of uh, a uh, uh, of an unjust war you know uh, we didn't all we didn't start off that way I joined the army you know I thought that that was my patriotic duty and you know what I needed to do in order to be a citizen here um, and I hadn't thought one way or the other really that much about about um, the the war um, you know I just believed what I was told same as most folks and it was taking care of the wounded um, at Madigan General Hospital down in Tacoma at Port Louis that first made me question the war because the I was working on a on a unit um, of head and neck trauma you know um, soldiers who had caught a a round or a fragment of some kind, uh, you know, a shard of shrapnel or whatever, um, in uh, in their spine or in their head, and um, you know, some of them were unconscious, comatose, and we used them as training aids, really, um, um, uh, for the doctors and nurses and stuff. But um, um, but uh, others of them were paralyzed from some point down, you know, some so severely that they couldn't even turn the page of a book. Um, they couldn't even poop by themselves, you know, they couldn't anything. And, uh, and those are the kind of patients that don't go away quickly, and so you get to know them, you know, on a real personal level. Um, uh, I was a medic taking care of them, and, and as horrible as their circumstance was, uh, which is pretty damn horrible, um, and that was eye-opening to me. Um, but what was even more shocking in some ways was that not a single one of those guys that I was taking care of, felt like they had made their sacrifice for a good cause. And so, like so many people, I was, you know, the the first time I ever heard that the war was wrong in any serious way was from returning soldiers, you know, the wounded that I was taking care of, uh, who universally told me, we're the bad guys here. We're the ones that are invading their country. And, uh, you know, you know, they had told us, you know, the uh, American people and soldiers that if we didn't stop them over there, we we're going to have to fight them over here. Well, you know, you guys got over there and found out that the Vietnamese didn't even have a proper Navy. They weren't coming over here. They, you know, we were over there invading their country. And and that realization was an eye opener for me and made me think, well, I've got to figure out that I, first of all, don't want to put somebody into the kind of circumstance that that my patients are in. Um, you know, I just didn't want I didn't want to be part of that. You know, uh, it was that's horrible. Yeah. And, uh, and second of all, I really didn't want to do it if it was for no good reason. You know, um, uh, if we were the, the, the invaders, um, and that's what it was, it was, uh, I mean, just like today, we got the Russians invading the Ukraines. Well, you know, we were over there invading and occupying Vietnam. And um, so at a certain point, I turned against the war. And typical for most people who ended up being resistors, I suppose, you know, I, I didn't go from one way to the other in one second. You know, I dipped my toe in it, you know, signed a little statement that I was against the war that I had seen in, a, in an ad in, the, um, in a newspaper. Um, I, um, um, you know, ultimately um, ended up applying to be a conscience objector. When my application to be a conscientious objector came back denied, along with orders for Vietnam, I, um, I uh, refused to pick up uh, an M16 to familiarize with it. And, you know, lost two stripes. Uh, I went from E4 to E2, which, you know, boom, from there you go on that. And, um, um, and, um, and then when I was uh, waiting for transfer to Vietnam down in the Bay Area, which was the shipping point for people who were supposed to go to Vietnam, you know, I saw the cops beating up a pregnant anti-war demonstrator in a demonstration. And I realized this is the democracy. You know, that was kind of like really opened my eyes because, you know, this is the democracy that we're supposed to be going over there and killing these folks and uh, and everything uh, to protect. You know, that's a bunch of BS. Well, at any rate, one thing led to another. Uh, ultimately, uh, I was sent by the movement into organized prisoners. If you can believe this, I had to trick my way into jail so I could organize prisoners to sit down. Uh, and do a protest uh, because a prisoner had gotten shot and killed and, and we did sit down and the next thing I knew I was on trial for my life uh, and was convicted of mutiny. In the meantime the GI movement had arisen and uh, and it became um, uh, one of those things where, um, where soldiers really started thinking that the army or the, whatever their branch of service was, you know, that the U S was the problem, not the, not the so-called enemy. And, um, and it really started really taking off. You know, there was a a big march in San Francisco uh, the weekend that I tricked my way into jail um, that was uh, led by, uh, it was called the GIs and veterans March for peace. And, you know, there was hundreds of GIs there, you know, they were all wearing these little, paper um um little hats you know these little paper hats like you'd have in an ice cream parlor or something um because uh, we weren't allowed to march in uniform and so in order to denote that we were active duty military personnel you know we wore these little paper hats to show you know it was kind of the closest thing to a service cap and um so if you look at pictures of that, you'll just see they like a sea of people wearing those little paper hats. You know, they were all active duty soldiers. Well, at any rate, the the movement grew and it grew and it grew. And this exhibit really is a document, you know, is documenting that 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 movement. At the height of it, the Pentagon um, finally admitted um, uh, that uh, that the the um, G.I. movement had created, had undercut, the, that the army had become ineffective or unreliable. Unreliable was their term. Uh, um, you know, uh, when they started taking away the guns from the guys in base camp, because they were more scared of the, of the guys shooting their officers than they were of the enemy attacking the, the camp, uh, you know, then uh, you could more or less tell that the army was in disarray. And, um, uh, you know, quoting uh, military sources, not movement sources. Military sources said that there was um, like 65,000, over 65,000 desertions in 1970 alone. That's the equivalent of four divisions. You know, there was over 100,000 AWOLs. In 1970, there was 209 fraggings. And by 1971, in the Americal Division, there was it was averaging one a week, just in that one division alone. Um, and then as the, and as the military, as the army became unreliable, as the soldiers really quit fighting for, you know, the, the US, um, started going out and avoiding combat rather than seeking combat and that kind of thing. Um, they, you know, Nixon withdrew or, you know, started ramping down the military, the army presence there, the ground forces, withdrawing ground forces. But then uh, the, the GI movement kind of Left, or not left, but kind of hopscotch from from the um, army to the navy. And so in 1971, there were 488 incidences of sabotage on US navy vessels. Some of those incidents caused, like, aircraft carriers to be in port for months instead of on their duty station off the coast of Vietnam. And of course, if an aircraft carrier had to sit in for months while they're you know, got the repairs because, you know, somebody throw a wrench into the reduction gears and the aircraft carrier wouldn't go. And so, um, um, you know, if if an aircraft carrier is sitting for months uh, being repaired, you know, millions of dollars of repairs, then that some other aircraft carrier had to extend their tour duty by those number of months, which of course meant that the guys on that other ship were pretty damn grumpy by the time they, you know, uh, so there was 488, incidents that the military admits you know um, in 1971 alone on the USS Ranger they had two dozen um, in two months alone they had two dozen instances of sabotage um, and um, and then the Air Force guys got into it and pilots refused to fly and, um, um, and people weren't doing the maintenance and so the planes were kind of shaky and, and the Pentagon admits that it that the GI resistance caused a 40% reduction in B-52 bombing runs, 40%. That's almost half, you know? So, uh, and, you know, um, and, and it got so bad that that the guys who were doing the, the, the military intelligence to try and figure out where the bombers were supposed to go bomb were given bad intel so that the bombers would go and just bomb some harmless place rather than, a, a, I mean, you know, this is the military being blinded by its own troops, you know, sending off the bombers thinking that they're bombing a, a legitimate target and are actually just dropping bombs in a jungle somewhere. Now, that doesn't mean that the Vietnamese weren't suffering plenty. You know, and all credit, of course, has to go to the Vietnamese for bucking up under all of that. Um, but the story that the exhibit tells is a different story. It's It's not the story that folks have heard all the time, which is that There was more bombs dropped in Vietnam than were dropped in all of World War I and World War II and Korea put together. Now, that's true, but you might have heard that story before. What you might not have heard, though, is that American soldiers really played a significant role in bringing that war to an end. And that's what this exhibit's all about. I know some about it because I was one of those soldiers, Um, but I wasn't alone, you know, um, and so... I'm really hoping that people will go and find out because it speaks directly to a real question that's on a lot of folks' mind, which is that when I started off talking about, which is, how do you stop those who will stop at nothing? American military was they were perfectly happy to torture and rape and kill and burn and pollute and gas and every other ugly thing you can think of. You know, I mean they were victory at all costs, you know, to the enemy. And um and and It's rare in human history when soldiers have been forced into a situation where they had to be the ones to stop the war. The American people are supposed to keep the war from happening, and the American people and government are supposed to stop the war if it's wrong. You know, that's their job. It's really a shame if it falls on the American soldiers to have to to do it. But the American soldiers realized through their own activities and presence in Vietnam that the war was wrong, that we were the bad guys. And then the American soldiers took matters into their own hands and that is a story that really needs to be told
0: you know just a a comment on that um, is that you know soldiers are the ones that bear the burden of war crimes shall we call them that of the war uh and um that's after being in a war they're the ones that are left with the debris of their mental and psychological distress in addition to their physical wounds, and it's unfortunate that, that that, but that's always the case, and and um, it's really uh, poetic, almost poetic, in a way that it was GIs, active and 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 the veterans too, who came forward and said this war is wrong. This is why it's wrong, and uh, why we are opposing it. Uh, you know, and I should also notice that as far as history goes, there there been in American history anyway. Uh, incidents of opposition to wars, very, very few sort of, uh, uh, there's li- very little history of actually active duty GIs while the war is being fought, standing up, going to prison in, in uh, your case and other cases in opposition to the war. It's a very historical defining point in American history that needs more attention, as you mentioned earlier, talking about teaching about the war Iran. Uh, and uh, for this reason, the exhibit is really an important thing. It's very, very important that it's at a, a uh, university. Uh, Christoph Giebel is doing an introduction to the uh, uh, whole program, and he is himself a Southeast Asian scholar, and also actually a Southeast Asian veteran himself. He served with the German uh, um, uh, hospital ship there in Southeast Asia. So. Um, Can you actually say what what the exhibit sort of looks like and what would people see when they go to the exhibit?
1: Sure. Um, First of all, it's it's a significantly large exhibit. It's uh, 17 panels. Each panel's four foot tall and eight feet wide. And they feature uh, photographs, documents, uh, statements by the Uh, Soldiers who participated uh, in the uh, G.I. anti-war movement, but also uh, scholars, uh, quotes from scholars, and as Randy said, uh, government documents and government figures uh, talking about the, uh, the growth of this resistance movement. The panels are organized to show different aspects of the G.I. resistance and protests. Uh, there's a couple of panels on the GI Underground Press. There were some 300 uh, newspapers produced by and for uh, soldiers, particularly soldiers coming back from uh, Vietnam, in in all of the different uh, services: Army, Navy, Marines, and Air Force. There is a panel on the coffee houses that were set up, including in Tacoma. Uh, but also uh, from one end of the United States to the other, from the north uh, to the deep south, from the east to the west. (coughs) Excuse me. There's a panel on desertion, a panel on uh, folks refusing to deploy to Vietnam, a panel on the resistance, as as, uh, Randy pointed out, when Nixon began to withdraw troops and and put the burden of the uh, continued fighting onto the Navy and Air Force, we have panels showing that type of protest. Uh, one of my favorite is a, is a front page of one of these underground papers shows some hundreds of Navy personnel on the uh, the. Uh, tarmac of, of a port in San Diego. We can see the aircraft carrier behind them and it says uh, the headline I think is uh, uh, GIs in revolt or Navy in revolt but what's interesting is you see them all with their hands raised and and the caption indicates that they were taking a vote on whether or not to get on that ship. I mean this is stuff that is uh, is nearly unbelievable if it wasn't documented in photographs, in newspaper headlines. Uh, not just their own underground papers, but we have the front page of the New York Daily News there, blown up big with a, a quote from the captain of uh, a unit in Vietnam saying, uh, "Sir, my men refused." Uh, t- I think the word is to fight or to to deploy. Um, front page of the New York Daily News was then the, the largest circulation uh, newspaper in the United States. So this is the kind of thing that you see. It gives a real flavor of what that struggle was about. You see there are pictures of a thousand Marines marching outside of Camp Pendleton uh, in Oceanside, California, a, a thousand active duty soldiers marching in Colleen, Texas, Uh, outside of uh, Fort Hood, the largest military base in the United States. And then the famous picture of the march that Randy took part in on October 12th, 1968, uh, led by uh, Lieutenant Susan Schnall of the U.S. Navy. But you can see the hundreds of soldiers with those little uh, caps that Randy mentioned, marching and, and following uh, hundreds of them were thousands of civilians to support them and from that march on october 1968 every major peace march in the united states was led by active duty soldiers and veterans it's very significant
0: well as i mentioned earlier i was a, a regional coordinator for vietnam veterans against the war and and i came to that uh, organization as a direct result of my experience in Vietnam, which was uh, I was an interrogator in 1967-68. And it wasn't so much being an interrogator and prisoners of war so much as watching and being witness to what the United States did to civilians, and that was bomb the shit out of them. Uh, Our village right next to us was uh, was, uh, attacked by... Bombers, uh, napalm, white phosphorus, and what have you. And we figured that maybe 200 civilians were killed. Some of of them came to us trying to because they knew us. Uh, We couldn't do anything. But uh, um, it was that experience directly, including having some people die right in front of you. And you couldn't do anything about it. Our medic didn't even have any any, uh, morphine for him. So uh, that and also coming back to the States in 1960, late 68, and then witnessing not too short, shortly after that, the American invasion of Cambodia. And I said, I don't believe this, that they're going to do this. Uh, And then we started a a chapter of veterans who morphed into Vietnam veterans against the war. And we provided, uh, among other things, um, worked with the uh, coffee house there in Tacoma, um, uh, shelter half. Uh, the uh, ran people across the border, deserters and, and uh, resistors, and provided CO uh, help to people. So it was a it was an active chapter, and just also you know he mentioned about the sort of the uh, GI resistance in 1960, well early 68. This is shortly after the Tet offensive. The R command uh, where our barracks were, we were mostly uh, interrogators and analysts, and and uh, uh, Image interpreters and started. They took our M14s. M14s. We didn't. Even, when we went out in the field, we had to scrounge an M16 because we going out in the field in 1968 with an M14 was useless. You'd have to strip a round out of an M60 machine gun to find ammunition for it. But anyway, they took our our M14s because there was a, a threat against a, uh, another soldier. Locked him up in our armory so that. And this was right after the Tet Offensive, and the shit blew where I was at the, in Cholon. There were, were shit all flying around all the time, and we were not directly attacked, although we got shrapnel from the fighting. So they did because they were so afraid of us. They took away our M14s and locked them into the armory, so that if we were attacked, we were shit out of luck. <laughs> you know, now how crazy is that? You know, and. Uh, an example of it, you know, we went and actually went and wrote it on with a um, uh, bug spray. We wrote FTA on, the, on, our, on our walls of our, our uh, barracks, uh, concrete barracks. Because it was whitewashed, uh, the CO had the thing repainted again, but it bled right through again. It was an FTA. <laughs> and he, he had a formation and he said, I know what that means. <laughs> I know what that means <laughs> so I mean it's this is an early sort of an, and we were not necessarily a combat unit although we went out in the field and supported combat units but the anti-war or the anti-military was very much a part of it certainly on my part as a draftee and uh, um, probably the most of, uh, nicest thing a remark ever made was by a, a group of uh, draftee um, Soldiers, when I was in that language school. And they said, Diedrich, he says, you've got a a U.S. attitude. And U.S. was the designation for
1: (laughs) draftees. So let's tell your listeners, Mike, what FTA stands for. FTA back in the 60s was the recruiting slogan for the U.S. Army. They made it up to say in their posters and their handout literature said fun, travel, and adventure, (laughs) Uh, FTA. But the soldiers uh, took that over and, and to the soldiers, and the reason you wrote it on the wall of the barracks is it meant F the army. Yeah. And, uh, I know that because when I went for my pre-induction fiscal in 1969, uh, I, I had, uh, I, I stayed the night before with uh, Noam Chomsky's sister-in-law, uh, Judy Chomsky, in Philadelphia. I was working at the GI Coffee House at Fort Dix, the largest recruiting and basic training uh, on on the uh, East Coast, at least in the northern part of the East Coast. And so I, that was only about fifty miles away from Philadelphia. And so the my friends at Judy's house they painted a red fist on my chest and the letters F T A. And so uh, when you had to strip down for the pre induction fiscal and on my back they wrote join the GI rebellion. <laughs> so I was stripped down to my civvies, <clears throat> but the key part was that outside there were two dozen soldiers. Uh, active duty soldiers from Fort Dix who came down to support me, and they picketed the center with signs telling the army to induct me so I could join their anti-war organization at Fort Dix, which they had uh, labeled the uh, SLF, the Soldiers' Liberation Front, play off the term National Liberation Front, which was a formal name of the the uh, So that got the army pretty spooked. That there were two dozen soldiers uh, uh, picketing outside, uh, asking them to induct me. And when I got to the point, uh, we, we all did. There's about a hundred of us in the gymnasium. We were supposed to drop our our uh, underpants and turn around for inspection there were five doctors in front of us. And one of them kept pointing at me and, and said, hey, you, hey, you there with that writing on the chest. And I kept trying to pretend I didn't know he was pointing at me. And and finally I said, what, you mean me? And he says, yeah, yeah. He says, boy, he says, what does that FTA mean? <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. So I stepped forward, <laughs> I raised my fist and I said, it means F the army, sir. And the whole group, 100 of us, everyone started rolling on the ground in laughter. Needless to say, they uh, figured they had enough trouble in the Army for the likes of uh, you, Mike, and Randy, and the tens of thousands of other soldiers who were opposing the war, and they didn't need one more. And so they they gave me a, I don't know what, a 4F or something, and they refused to uh, let me in. Which place? You know,
0: there. um, One of the things that people don't really realize is what what the army did and how how uh, alarmed they were about, um, particularly returning veterans. Was that they? uh, I was uh, spent uh, a year in Vietnam, and then I had four months left to go on my my uh, my ETS. And at that time, I, I was I was not coming back to the states because I hated the chicken shit. Regiment of the states, and I was actually putting in some uh, extension papers so I'd stay in Vietnam another four months and discharge out of the army from there. And a battalion clerk comes down to me. He says, "Dieter, he says, you want to get out of here?" I says, "Well, fuck yes." And he says, "They just uh, uh, they gave uh, if you've got less than six months to go in your service after your during your tour in Vietnam, they'll let you out." And the reason they did that is because soldiers coming back from Vietnam were unruly. They didn't follow orders. And they, uh, worst of all, they contaminated the rest of the young soldiers who were going to Vietnam with their FTA attitude. Uh, anecdote There's a friend of mine who was actually one of the guys who was, uh, first started to bet VFP, he was, he was a Marine captain. And he was... Uh, during Vietnam, he didn't go to Vietnam, but he was in charge of a holding company of Marines who had come back from Vietnam. This guy was a Marine captain. He'd been in like six, eight years. And he said, these guys coming back from Vietnam, they would say to a gunny sergeant, which is like a god in Marine Corps, fuck you. They said to him, fuck you. They wouldn't do anything. And they just laid around and waited to get out of them. And he says, I was just, I couldn't believe it. He was a Marine Corps captain. He says, these people in the Marine Corps We're talking about senior NCOs and officers to tell them to go to hell. And that was because of their experience in Vietnam and the military. And it was, you know, for him as a, um, not a lifer, but I mean a Marine Corps officer and people who don't know our Marine Corps says, I mean, they they take very seriously this shit. It was unbelievable, just unbelievable. I mean, good example of what, uh, you know opposition to the war. In these cases, it was sort of passive. <laughs> I'm not going to do anything.
1: Well, the important thing to me about this exhibit and, and the way it's been shown at a dozen different universities across <laughs> the country, and the way it's being organized at uh, both UW Seattle and also at, simultaneously we have another one at University of Puget Sound, is that it's not just something to come by and look at, but Randy and the Veterans for Peace chapter uh, have organized a series of events around this uh, forums where you can hear directly from panels of the GIs uh, who were active then, uh, hear more stories like Randy and you have just told today. Um, You can uh, see movies Uh, documenting these, uh, a a very exciting, vibrant uh, uh, documentary called Sir, No Sir, which is perhaps the best uh, documentary I've ever seen on any subject in my life about the GI anti-war movement. So I I encourage people uh, to uh, get hold of, and Randy can tell you how, the uh, program that's going to take place from uh, the... 28th of September through the 28th of October, uh, both in Seattle and in uh, Tacoma. I'm I'm coming up next week, uh, flying in to help uh, to help display the exhibit. Uh, I'll be speaking on Wednesday the 28th at 6 p.m. at the Parable Bookstore in Tacoma. And we're trying to set up something for the next day at six thirty at Three Tree Books in Seattle, but that's not confirmed yet. But there, I just encourage listeners to your show uh, to show up. But I want to make another request. It'd be great if we get some younger people there too, and and it's a lot of folks our age, you know, who were coming of age in the 60s and 70s who are the stalwart people coming to this type of event but i'd like listeners to think about bringing their children and their grandchildren encourage them to bring their next-door neighbor i was at an event in washington dc last night and i uh, had a couple of my neighbors come including a couple of their teenage uh, children and this is what it's about uh, we we want to encourage the folks here, and and then let me say one other thing, uh, because it it relates to what Randy was saying about what does it take uh, to stop a war, uh, and I don't know if people have been watching the news lately, but the there's a growing anti-war movement in Russia, among the Russian soldiers, and 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 young men who are of age and who are part of the reserves and the uh the new york times reported yesterday that the the flights out of russia are entirely booked up every direct flight out of wash out of russia is booked up and this is largely draft age men or men already in the reserves who want to get the hell out because they don't want to be part of the invasion of of the ukraine and, and so we have our own uh, crosses to bear. We have our own uh, wars that are improper, that are still continuing. The U.S. is still uh, engaging improperly throughout the world. Uh, and there's so many other issues that young people have to fight uh, against for, for justice, for social justice. So let's, you know, let's get a good crowd out there. Uh but let's try and get uh, some younger people out there too. I'm thrilled to hear Randy, uh, the students at UW Seattle are taking an active role in promoting the program there. And that, that makes me so happy. It's the best news I've heard for all week, for, for the whole month of September so far. It makes me feel great. Uh, it's been terrific for me working with the Veterans for Peace chapter in uh, Seattle. I'm, I'm very excited about this.
0: Well, you know, uh, that's uh, very important to get the younger people. And i um, <clears throat> not really blowing my horn, but I wrote a book about um, uh, Vietnam, uh, um, Southern Voices, Vietnam and the National Liberation Front which was part of an uh, expedition I went back to Vietnam and interviewed uh, eight former NLF soldiers. But what I've, one of the, uh, byproducts of that experience and that book is finding out how many people that have read the book or are familiar with it are ignorant including people of my vintage to say nothing of younger people of what happened in Vietnam why we were there how long we were basic sort of information about who the who the NLF and why the Viet Viet, uh, Vietnamese were fighting us and hopefully this exhibit will fill in some of that gap, but this country has got a short attention span and a long, long history of forgetting about what it's wars in particular. Uh, and, uh, you know, thanks to you, Ron and Randy, uh, to bring this this history uh, front and center, because it's it's like this country doesn't forget, doesn't remember what it's done. And it's not just the young people who have actually, it's not they don't know, but people like our age who's, who are oblivious. Uh, so, kudos to you. And I actually want to sort of give a, um, before we get too late here, that this show is being broadcast on KODX 96.9. And it's also going to be uh, these uh, audio uh, um archives of the show will be also be ar- archived on vfp92.org and also if you want to find some more information about this project that we're talking about the vietnam exhibit uh you can go to the vfp92.org website where there's a complete flyers and information to run uh mentioned about um it's really a, an astonishing amount of, of, of presentations really not just the, the large exhibit too but the panels, the films, the presentation of poetry, the music it's uh, it's really uh, quite an achievement and, and, uh, and I'd like to thank both of you to uh, for the work you've done in promoting this. Um, so any sort of final thoughts here before I uh, shut you off? <laughs>
1: Go ahead, No, no, no. Randy. <laughs> I, I just,
2: I want to point out that what the, in some ways, the message of the exhibit is that movements matter, that you really can change the course of history um, with concerted effort uh, by a whole lot of folks. Uh, and movements matter. and And that's a lesson that really applies to modern times in a big way because humanity faces... You know, we stand at the brink on so many different ways in terms of, uh, you know, environmental issues, uh, you know, climate change, nuclear war, etc. Movements matter, and we can, in fact, change history. We have, this exhibit shows how we have done it in the past. In that regard, the students at the UW. I do want to put in a plug for them. It's a it's a student organization of anti-war uh, activists. Um, they're against. Uh, imperialist war you know u.s led imperialist war um and uh, their group is called resist seattle and uh, they're uh starting a campaign this fall on the uw campus which is uh <clears throat> which targets uh boeing as a war profiteer yep. and uh, in the question of you know imperialist war in general um similarly there's another group um uh that's starting at uh um, um, at uh, the uh, CLU, um, which is, uh, which is going to be uh, divest, divest from war. Uh, and they're starting their fall campaign shortly. So, so uh the student movement is, is growing. It, um, it's really, it's happening folks. It's exciting. I never thought that I would get to live through, the excitement of the '60s and early '70s uh, again in my life, but I sense that it started to, you know, it's starting to pick up, um, and so uh, folks can can find uh, encouragement in in that fact. I'd say.
0: Well, yeah, actually, you know, I mean, the anti-war movement in the '60s and '70s relied heavily on student activism. It wasn't just students, of course, uh, but they were, they they provided a lot of the uh, uh, staying power for the uh, the, the uh, anti-war activism, peace and justice movements. Ron?
1: I just want to say that the, uh, this exhibit uh, continues at the War Remnants Museum in Saigon through the end of November. Uh, this is the uh, 13th, 14th uh, University, uh, in, in this country, and after Seattle's going up to University of Alaska in Juneau, uh, it it has a a life of its own. But it it comes to life uh, with all the associated events around it. So, uh, if if you're looking for inspiration, if you're feeling down in the dump and like the problems are maybe too tough to ever. Uh, respond to uh you'll find your inspiration through this exhibit and uh a lot of good people all over the country all over the world are joining together uh and and looking for justice looking for uh, uh gender equality looking for uh to respond to climate change <clears throat> um, this country uh, dealing with the suppression uh of the vote uh tough issues we have, and and so it's great to find inspiration from people who put their lives on the line uh, to end the war in Vietnam. Uh, My hat is off to them, and my hat is off to the Veterans for Peace chapter in Seattle and in Tacoma uh, for uh, getting the word out and sponsoring these exhibits.
0: Okay, Ron and Randy, thank you for your uh, participation in this little radio program. My name is Mike Diedrich for Veterans for Peace radio show on KODX 96.9, signing off. Hopefully, you listeners find this very informative. It's uh, very informative to me to listen to you too. So, thanks again.
1: Thank you.